We're continuing our, our message on gratitude, and aren't we grateful to our God this morning? He has done so much, and, and uh, boy, just overwhelmed by, by his presence this morning. And I trust uh, God is going to speak to all of us this morning. He already, I believe, spoke to, to my heart and those who were here in the first service, and I'm just expecting him to do it once again. And um, last week, if you were here, were here, you remember that Pastor Gary opened our, our series on gratitude, and he, he challenged us to make these gratitude adjustments in our lives. And a couple of verses quick that we're, we're building the series upon and around. The first one's Romans chapter 12, verse 2, a well-known verse, but it says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That's, that's, that's where that gratitude, and making those gratitude adjustments in our thought processes. It says, then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. And couple that one with 1 Thessalonians 5, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will, no matter what situation we find ourselves in, to give him thanks and praise. We're thankful to have had that opportunity this morning. And, and you know, we're going we're gonna to continue to make these gratitude adjustments in our lives. And we'll be doing that this morning by, by focusing on some basic fundamental truths concerning who God is and what he has done. This is just, really the simple gospel this morning. And, you know, this is really where our gratitude begins. Because I believe as we come to a deeper understanding of these foundations for our faith, we will then be enabled to, to live in that constant state of gratitude with lives abounding with thanksgiving. One more verse Pastor Gary shared that I just couldn't leave out. It's from Colossians. And uh, with his permission, I'd make it our third theme verse for this series. It just really spoke to me and, and ties into to the message this morning. It says, let your roots grow down into him. Let your lives be built upon him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you will overflow with thankfulness. Amen. That's my desire. That's my prayer, that through the water of the, of the word of God, that the roots of our faith would grow strong and grab a hold of, of these basic but yet profound truths which will cause our lives to overflow with gratitude to our great God. So who is this God that we're so grateful to? There's four things we're going to focus on. The first one is that we are grateful to the God of creation. The God who created it all. You know, we live in an amazing world. A world which proclaims the majesty and the immense power of our God. A world which proclaims and displays his genius and his, his unlimited creativity. You know, whether you observe his wonders with, the, you know, with, with your natural eye or, or with a microscope or a telescope, the message is the same. Our God is an awesome God. The trouble is we tend to get so accustomed to all of this splendor around us. If we're not careful, we easily 
lose the wonder of this miraculous world where we live. I was challenged as I was preparing this, and, and I, I thought, you know, when was the last time that I just stopped and took in the beauty of something as simple as flowers? When was the last time you took a rose and just examined the beauty? And this isn't hard for you ladies, but guys, when was the last time we just dwelt upon God's creative design in a rose? I challenge you, next time you're at Stater Brothers or Ralph's, Food for Less, wherever you shop, camp out just for a few minutes right in front of the floral refrigerator and just take it all in. Take in the beauty of those arrangements, the, the, the details that they, that they contain. After you're done there, and uh, just cruise on over. It's not too far away to the produce department. Grab yourself a mango, pineapple, strawberries, whatever your favorite fruit might be. Take that home and just really enjoy, savor, if you will, the flavor of that fruit. And ask yourself, could evolution really have done this? I think not. Only God could have packed all that flavor into a mango. If that's me, sorry about that. That evening, grab a flashlight, head outside, see if you can find a spider weaving its web. Have you ever watched a spider weaving its web? It's one of the most amazing things ever, and a bunch of ladies are cringing right now. You've got to be kidding me, you're thinking. Well, if spiders aren't your thing, go to Home Depot, grab a hummingbird feeder, set it up, and be ready for a show which defies all logic or reason. We could go on and on and on about the details, the wonders of God's creation all around us. I'll point out just a couple more. Take a drive to the desert sometime, shut your car off, turn the lights off, get out, and just look up. And behold, the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of visible stars, and try to comprehend the billions of stars which are beyond that in our, Milky Way, in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and then consider that our galaxy is one of what billions of galaxies out there all containing billions upon billions of stars. I love David. He was a, a stargazer. He would spend those, those evenings out there with the sheep. And in Psalm 19, he, he says, The heavens proclaim or declare the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone out throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. May we, like David, take the time to contemplate the glory of God all around us and in the skies in particular. Get up early at least one time each week and take in the glory of a, of a sunrise. Make sure you watch the sunset. And haven't they been glorious lately? Watch that sun go down. Watch the clouds go by and just take in the wonders that surround us. Echoing the, the heart of David and others, 
It was a, a hymn writer back 150 years ago or so who, who wrote the, the well-known hymn, How Great Thou Art. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you grew up singing it. I'm just going to share a few verses throughout the message, but verse 1 says this. It says, O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art." You know, as amazing as the, the creation is around us, the fact is, is that it pales in comparison to the creation within us. See, on the sixth day of creation, after God's work was nearly finished, he gathered some of the soil, some of the dirt which he created it. He shaped it and molded it, molded it into an upright image, took a deep breath and breathed into that form, and man became a living, breathing being. And what's so unique about it is, is we see in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, where God said, this is really what, what sets us apart from the animals. See, God formed us, breathed life into us, saying, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. See, contrary to popular opinion and what so many children are being taught in school, you are not an accident. You're not the product of random chance over the course of millions and billions of years, but rather you are the epitome of the creation of Almighty God. That God who loves you and made you in his image with the capacity to know him personally and to enjoy his presence forever. We've been made in his image. Well, along with the, the capacity for relationship, God in, in his wisdom, he, he fashioned us with free will. See, God gave each one of us the capacity to choose. Back in the garden, we the Garden of Eden, we see that Adam and Eve, they had a choice. They chose to disobey God's word, and, and ultimately, so have I. So have you. All of us, we have rebelled against God's command. We have allowed sin to contaminate us, and, and our entire creation really is, is contaminated with sin. As, as amazing and as awesome as it is, this is fallen creation. Oh, what heaven must be like if this is fallen creation. So we've all sinned. We've all, we've all chosen to disobey God. And the consequence of our sin, like it was for Adam and Eve, is more than we could bear. Namely, death and eternal separation from our Creator. Well, thanks be to God. Even before he created the world, before he formed us, he foresaw the fall, he foresaw our rebellion, and he planned and prepared for our redemption and for the restoration of his creation. And that leads us into our, our second point this morning, the, the second thing we're grateful, uh, grateful for. You see, the creator came and lived among his creation. 
And we are grateful to the God not only of creation, but to the God of the incarnation. John chapter 1, one of the most important passages, I would say, in the entire Bible. We're going to look at several verses in John chapter 1, but starting out in verse 1 through 4 and, and verse 14, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. First thing that kind of becomes clear in that passage is that John here is, is using uh, the word, word, the Greek word logos, in our English it's translated as word, he's using it to refer to Jesus. And time prohibits us from, from going into an in-depth uh, word study of, of this Greek word logos. I, I encourage you, if you have time, it's a fascinating study. It also Time also doesn't permit us to go into great detail of, of why John, through the Holy Spirit, chose to, to use this term in referring to Jesus. But for our purposes this morning, just hang on to this one thought. If we, if, if you have the intention of getting to know somebody, you primarily rely upon what? You rely upon your words to accomplish that. We use our, our words to communicate who we are. And hopefully we listen to the words of the other person to find out you know, who they are, what makes them who they are. See, and I believe that Jesus here in the word of God is referred to as the word because he is the primary means of how our God, of how our creator is revealed to us. In fact, he is the only way, he is the one way that we can come to know God and enter into a, a meaningful personal relationship with him. Notice also in these verses from John 1 that the word is eternal. When the beginning began, Jesus, the word, was already there. Not only was he with God in the beginning, but he himself was God. You have to let this truth sink deep down into your spirit. Don't for a moment let anybody knocking on your door bring doubt into your mind or anybody handing out a magazine on the sidewalk. Don't let it rob you of the glory of this truth. Jesus was not created by God, but he was and is today God the creator. Jesus made us. He made you. Amen. Colossians 1, a parallel passage with John 1, says Jesus, he is the image or the, the, the visible representation of the invisible God. He's the firstborn or more literally the preeminent one. He's the supreme one over all of creation because by him all things were created. All things that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things 
were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist or are held together. Jesus is the one holding this world together. So the Bible clearly teaches, and we believe Jesus is the eternal, uncreated creator of the universe. He is not less than the Father, but equal to him. He is not separate from the Holy Spirit, but one with the Spirit. And if that's hard for you to wrap your mind around, take in once again verse 14. This awesome God, our creator, became flesh and dwelt among us. See, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the creator stepped into his creation. Deity put on humanity. The eternal word became a man. The almighty God left heaven and became Emmanuel, God with us. So why did he do it? Why leave the, the glory of heaven and walk the dirt of this earth? You know it well. He came. He was born in order to die. And that's our third point this morning. We are grateful to the God of Calvary. First John chapter 4, this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice. If you have your physical Bible with you, circle that, underline it, exclamation points around it. Sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God sent his son as a sacrifice. And unfortunately, this concept of, of sacrifice has lost a bit of its impact in our world today. You know, we talk of sacrificing time or sacrificing money or, or various things. But this act of, of sacrificing held much greater weight in biblical times, and it should hold great weight even today, and it does when we properly understand it. But we see sacrifices being made all throughout the Old Testament. Again, in the Garden of Eden, after the fall, God, in a sense, sacrificed an innocent animal to provide covering for Adam and Eve. Remember in the book of Exodus, on the night of Passover, God's instructions were for each home to take a spotless lamb and to sacrifice it, taking the blood and wiping it on the doorframe of their home so that death could not enter in. Sacrifice. It's a theme all throughout the Old Testament. In the Mosaic Law, God instituted a, a sacrificial system which made it possible for sinful man to approach a holy God. And, and once again, you know, time prohibits us from going into a super in-depth study on, on this sacrificial system. I want to look at just a, a couple of verses and highlight some, some truths surrounding this sacrifice. And I encourage you, some of this, you know, don't get lost in the details, okay? Whatever thoughts are maybe coming in, distracting you, try to focus right now, okay? And try to, try to take this in. Let, let those roots go deep. Because this is the message of Scripture. This is a book of sacrifice from beginning to end. And in the book of Leviticus, we read in chapter 1, now, this is speaking of an, uh, an approaching sinner who are bringing, who's bringing a sacrifice to the tabernacle, this tent that was set up in the wilderness, later the temple built there in Jerusalem. But God says that he shall lay his hand 
on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement or literally a covering for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. There's all kinds of details like this in the book of Leviticus. We don't often study it, but I encourage you to. It's profound what God lays out here. I wanted to, to emphasize the first line there and, the, and these instructions that, that God gave when a, when a sinner was bringing a sacrifice. He told them to take their hands and lay their hands on the head of the animal, whether it was a bull in this situation, in these verses, or a, or a lamb, a goat, whatever the animal was. And, you know, at first glance, this, this may appear to, to seem like an insignificant detail. Have the sinner take their hands, place them on the head of the animal. But we see this detail given over and over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture. Countless references, and I think I included a bunch of them in the notes. And what, why God was, was, was highlighting this and making it such a, a priority to always include it is because it was really a physical picture of what was happening in the spiritual realm. See, at the time of the sacrifice, the worshiper, this, this sinner, was coming, bringing the sacrifice, and as they laid their hands upon the animal, the sins of the individual were being transferred onto the animal. Now, for just a minute, try to place yourself in the, in the sandals of one of those early worshipers there in Israel as you approach the temple. Sin had made its way into your life, the guilt and the shame, and, and the time had come for you to, to select one of your best animals, one without blemish, without spot. And whether it was, a, a, again, a lamb or a bull, whatever it was, you approach the temple, it's, it's your time, it's your opportunity, it's your turn, and you bring your, your animal before the priests, and they instruct you to take your hands, and you lay your hands upon the head of your animal, this spotless, innocent creature. And the priests are gathered around, and they have their instruments of sacrifice. One of the Levites takes the blade, and with your hands on the head, he ends the life of that animal. And with your hands on the head, you literally feel the life departing from that sacrifice. And in that moment, a truth sinks in, a reality goes to the core of your being that sin is serious. Sin has consequences. Sin always brings death. And in that moment, your sins have been placed upon the head of that animal. It has died instead of you. The animal was your substitute, taking the punishment that you deserved upon itself. And you walk away with your sins atoned, covered over, cleansed. And hopefully you walk away with a, a renewed commitment to serve and honor with all your heart this holy God 
which cannot allow sin in his presence. So you make your way home, and what would inevitably happen in the not-too-distant future? You sin again. Something happens. Sin enters your tent. And that foreboding sense of judgment once again enters in, and you begin to think, which animal should I sacrifice next? And this cycle repeats itself over and over again. In the New Testament, the author of Hebrews explains the futility of this process. In Hebrews chapter 10, we read the old system under the law of Moses. It was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. If they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshipers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. But instead, those sacrifices actually reminded them of their sins year after year after year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It wasn't possible. The sacrifices made only provided that temporary covering. But praise be to God, there exists today a sacrifice which completely removes our sin. Once again in John chapter 1, this time, verse 29, it says, The next day, John, this time, actually speaking of John the Baptist, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the entire sacrificial system explained and put on display in the Old Testament was a picture preparing the nation of Israel and really the entire world for the ultimate sacrifice as God would offer himself for the sins of the entire world. See, when Jesus climbed the hill of Calvary, he did it in our place. When his blood was shed, it was because of us. When he sacrificed his life upon the cross, it was in place of us. He was our substitute. He took our place. We, as it were, placed our hands upon his head and placed that crown of thorns. We struck him with our sin and we nailed him to that cross. He took our place. Isaiah 53 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Corinthians 5, for he, <clears throat> for he made him who knew no sin blameless, spotless, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 10, once again, for God's will was for us to be, to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Jesus isn't crucified over and over and over again. Crucified one time forever. Forever. 
This is why we hear Jesus with his blood poured out and the life departing from him cry out with a loud voice, it is finished. There no longer remains anything to be done. The price was paid. Jesus purchased our freedom. We didn't deserve it. We can't earn it. But in response, in gratitude, we offer our lives back to him as living sacrifices, as as Romans chapter 12, verse 1 talks about. Recognizing Jesus took my place. He died the death that I deserve to die. I therefore surrender my life to him because he bought me. He purchased me. He set me free. And he owns me. How grateful I am for the cross. And when I think of God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. One more passage as we move into our final point and begin to close. Again in Hebrews chapter 9, summarizing what we just looked at together. But now, once for all time, he has appeared at the end of the age to remove sin by his own death as a sacrifice. And just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes judgment, so also Christ was offered once for all time as a sacrifice to take away the sins of many people. And notice this, he will come again, not to deal with our sins, but to bring salvation to all who are eagerly waiting for him. We are grateful, not only to the God of Calvary, but to the God of the second coming. See, that same Jesus who died on Calvary is preparing to come back to our world. As you know, three days after Jesus died upon that cross, he rose again, defeating the grave. And having spent 40 days upon the earth after his resurrection, he met one last time just on the outskirts of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, with those who had followed him from the beginning. And as they talked with him, we're told in the first chapter of Acts that Jesus, right in the, right in the midst of them, began to ascend towards heaven. And the disciples watched in amazement until they could no longer see him. And as they continued gazing at the clouds, it says in Acts chapter 1 that two men all of a sudden stood by them in white apparel and said, men of Galilee, why stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming again to place his foot in the exact spot where he departed, and he will once and for all set up his reign forever and ever and ever. Amen. See, his kingdom, his reign is not subject to elections. It's not subject to man's approval. He will take his rightful place as king of kings and lord of lords, never to relinquish power to anyone forever and ever and ever. I am grateful for the second coming. It's where I put my hope. It's where I put our future. See, every day we are one day closer to the return of Jesus Christ. We see the stage being set all around us. There is no reason to fear what the days ahead may 
hold. The doctrine of the second coming is not something to fear, something to anticipate. And I encourage you, if you sense fear rising up, that's the Spirit of God speaking to you, making it known you need a sacrifice. You need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. He died for you personally. He knows your situation. He knows what you're facing. He's no, he knows what you've done. And he's not turning you away. He's saying, come. Come unto me, all you who are laboring or heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Come to him. We have so many reasons to be grateful. We have an amazing creator who possesses all, all power and authority. We have an amazing God, a God who humbled himself and became a man. We have an amazing Savior, Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice in place of us, our substitute. And we have the promise that this same Jesus will one day return, welcome us into his eternal home. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow with humble adoration and proclaim my God how great Thou art. We call this the altar up here. It's a place where you can meet with God, but you can meet with him also right where, right where you're at. Whether it's up here this morning with one of our prayer partners or in your seat, meet with him. Talk to him. Cry out to him. Give him your thanks. Offer him your gratitude. And let's leave this place with our faith rooted in the truth of the gospel with lives abounding with gratitude. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness to us, your grace towards us. We thank you for your perfect sacrifice and the message of the gospel, which is all throughout this blessed gift you've given us in, in the Bible. Help us to be people who walk worthy of the cross. We thank you for your sacrifice there and, and we commit to serving you the rest of our days. We offer our lives to you as living sacrifices. Take all of us. Be Lord and God over every area of our lives. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.